Welcome to my podcast, my dad podcast. This is the 1787 Project, the podcast version of the lectures for my socially distanced class on the U.S. Constitution at the University of Missouri. I'm your professor and host, Justin Dyer. In February 1905, 116 years ago now this month, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in the case of Joseph Lochner versus New York. Lochner had been issued an indictment that said that he, quote, wrongfully and unlawfully required and permitted employees working for him in his biscuit, bread, and cake bakery and confectionery establishment to work more than 60 hours in one week. The state statute in question made it illegal to work in a bakery more than 60 hours in a week or more than 10 hours in a day. Lochner owned a little bakery called Lochner's Home Bakery, and he worked and permitted others to work more than 60 hours each week. When he was found in violation of the statute and fined, he then challenged New York's bakery statute on the grounds that it violated the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. Why would it violate the Due Process Clause? The clause says that the state shall not deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. But the state of New York passed a law. Lochner violated it. He was fined as a result, meaning the state deprived him of his liberty and property, but the state didn't deprive him of any of the procedural safeguards for criminal defendants. He was indicted and he had his day in court. He was admittedly guilty of what the statute said he shouldn't do, which is work more than 60 hours in a week or let other people work more than 60 hours in a week. So his claim here is really about what we've been calling substantive due process. It's a claim that the state has deprived him of liberty and property arbitrarily or without justification. It's an unreasonable statute and therefore goes beyond what is required by the due process of law, at least according to Lochner. We could add more to the argument. Most lawmakers in 1868, when the 14th Amendment was written, had a particular view of the natural rights of individuals. This included the right to own property, to pursue a lawful vocation, and to enter into contracts for labor. This is the same basic vision that you get in the Civil Rights Act of 1866. And some justices on the Supreme Court, like Stephen Field, maintained this basic reading of the 14th Amendment from the time it was written. We saw that in his dissenting opinions in the Slaughterhouse cases in 1873 and then in Munn v. Illinois in 1876. By the time we got to Lochner, a majority of the court had adopted this basic approach to economic regulations at the state level. It's not that the state can never regulate property rights or limit the hours someone can work. It's not that someone can enter into a contract for absolutely anything. We still don't allow murder for hire. But our default position is going to be that an individual has the right to dispose of his property as he chooses, including property in his own labor. And if the state's going to limit the right in some way through regulation, then the state needs to demonstrate that the regulation is reasonable or justified. This is at least how the court's approaching it in Lochner. And in Lochner, five members of the court think the regulation is unreasonable. In his majority opinion, Justice Rufus Peckham summarizes the court's methodology with this question. Is this a fair, reasonable, and appropriate exercise of the police power of the state? Or is it an unreasonable, unnecessary, and arbitrary interference with the right of the individual to his personal liberty, or to enter into those contracts in relation to labor which may seem to him appropriate or necessary for the support of himself and his family? 
Peckham and the courts, answer was that there is no reasonable ground for interfering with the liberty of a person or the right of free contract by determining the hours of labor in the occupation of a baker, as they wrote. Bakers are just as capable of anyone else as understanding their own interests and determining for themselves the needs of their families and how many hours they'll labor each week. There's nothing particularly dangerous about the occupation or any other reason that would justify the deprivation of their liberty and property, the majority said. And in dissent, Justice Harlan disagreed, but note why he disagreed. Harlan thought it actually was a reasonable regulation. Laboring for long hours on your feet in areas that are not well ventilated next to hot ovens while inhaling bread spores has real detrimental effects on health. The legislature is not unreasonable here. And so Harlan and two of the other justices would have upheld the state statute, but by going through the same basic questions. There's an underlying agreement between the majority and the dissent by Harlan. If the state passes a law that is completely unreasonable, then yes, that violates due process. They just disagree about whether this particular statute is unreasonable. They have a different approach to how deferential the court should be to legislative judgments in this area. But there's one opinion in the case that takes direct aim at the whole structure of the argument about reasonableness, property rights, and the liberty to contract. Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, who fought in and was wounded in the Civil War and served on the court from 1902 to 1932, didn't have much patience for substantive due process. He didn't believe in natural rights or natural law. He thought judges should be deferential to legislative policy judgments in general. And in a letter to his friend Harold Lasky, Holmes once wrote, If my fellow citizens want to go to hell, I will help them. It's my job. And here's how he laid out the argument in his Lochner dissent. As Holmes said, This case is decided upon an economic theory which a large part of the country does not entertain. If it were a question whether I agreed with that theory... I should desire to study it further and long before making up my mind. But I do not conceive that to be my duty, because I strongly believe that my agreement or disagreement has nothing to do with the right of a majority to embody their opinions in law. It is settled by various decisions of this court that state constitutions and state laws may regulate life in many ways which we as legislators might think is injudicious, or if you like as tyrannical as this, and which equally with this interfere with the liberty to contract. Holmes then gives some examples. We have laws regulating how much interest you can charge in lending, laws prohibiting people from opening their shops on Sundays, laws that require vaccination or inoculation. And then he goes on to say, Some of these laws embody convictions or prejudices which judges are likely to share. Some may not. But a constitution is not intended to embody a particular economic theory, whether of paternalism and the organic relation of the citizen to the state or of laissez-faire. It is made for people of fundamentally different views, and the accident of our finding certain opinions natural and familiar or novel and even shocking ought not to conclude our judgment upon the question whether the statutes embodying them conflict with the Constitution of the United States. The purpose of the Constitution, according to Holmes, is not to take sides in these policy disputes. The court should, for the most part, defer to legislative majorities. And yet, Holmes still leaves some room for the court to strike down some laws that go against deeply rooted fundamental principles. Every opinion tends to become a law, he says. And I think that the word liberty in the 14th Amendment is perverted when it is held to prevent the natural outcome of a dominant opinion, unless it can be said that a rational and fair man necessarily would admit that the statute proposed would infringe fundamental principles as they have been understood by the traditions of our people and our law. 
We're left here after Holmes's dissent with a challenge and some questions leveled at the court's substantive due process jurisprudence. Who are the judges to say what is reasonable or unreasonable? Is there anything more than our shared convictions or prejudices? Could judges say of any policy that it is objectively unreasonable, contrary to what is good and right for human beings and therefore unconstitutional? Or should judges simply defer to our history and traditions? And who gets to say what is rooted in the traditions of our people and our law? At the moment when a new legal regime takes root, doesn't that by definition become part of the traditions of our people and our law? We could be libertarians, we could be socialists. Either one of those things might sound like hell from a particular perspective of a particular judge, but according to Holmes, when a majority of citizens want to go to hell, it's the job of the judge to help them get there. And after this case, Lochner came to signify a whole era of substantive due process jurisprudence focused mainly on property rights and the liberty to contract, asking whether particular economic regulations at the state level are reasonable. Sometimes the court thought they were, they were upheld. Sometimes the court thought they weren't, and they were struck down. But that was the dominant jurisprudential approach, underwritten by a particular vision of property rights and economic liberty as connected to what it means to be free and to live well. That vision was increasingly on a collision course with 20th century labor regulations, including significantly the push for minimum wage laws. In a case called Atkins v. Children's Hospital in 1923, the Supreme Court heard a challenge to Washington, D.C.'s minimum wage law for women and children. Since this was Washington, D.C., so part of the federal government, it was a Fifth Amendment case rather than a Fourteenth Amendment case. But it involved the same question. Does a minimum wage law unreasonably infringe on the individual's right to contract? Relying on Lochner, the court in Atkins said it did. Now fast forward to 1937. The state of Washington has passed a minimum wage law for women, and Elise Parrish is a maid at the West Coast Hotel in Washington. She's being paid below the minimum wage. So she sues her employer for the difference. And the same question's now on the table. Does a minimum wage law violate the 14th Amendment's due process clause because it arbitrarily or unreasonably interferes with the liberty of an individual to contract for labor? What has changed is the background politics of the era. Franklin Roosevelt was elected in 1932 and then re-elected in 1936, and he won every state in the Electoral College except for Vermont and New Hampshire. Democrats controlled 77% of the Senate and 75% of the House. And the Democrats' signature legislative agenda was related to national economic regulation. The only thing that stood in the way was the Supreme Court. Roosevelt had only recently unveiled his plan to pass a bill to add more justices to the court. Those justices would presumably then vote to uphold the economic regulations coming out of Congress. Justice Owen Roberts then voted in West Coast Hotel versus Parish to uphold the minimum wage law. Rightly or wrongly, this was perceived to be a strategic calculation on Roberts's part to address the threat of the judicial reform bill coming out of Congress. We remember this now, Roberts's vote, as the switch in time that saved nine, the nine here being the nine members of the Supreme Court. Whatever the reasons, a majority of the Supreme Court did in this case uphold the state of Washington's minimum wage law, but as always with some nuance. As Chief Justice Charles Evans Hughes wrote for the court, in each case, both the old Atkins case and now this one in West Coast Hotel, the violation alleged by those attacking minimum wage regulation for women is deprivation of freedom of contract. What is this freedom? The Constitution does not speak of freedom of contract. It speaks of liberty and prohibits the deprivation of liberty without due process of law. 
In prohibiting that deprivation, the Constitution does not recognize an absolute and uncontrollable liberty. Liberty in each of its phases has its history and connotation, but the liberty safeguarded is liberty in a social organization which requires the protection of law against the evils which menace the health, safety, morals, and welfare of the people. Liberty under the Constitution is thus necessarily subject to the restraints of due process and regulation which is reasonable in relation to its subject and is adopted in the interests of the community is due process. And in particular, Hughes points to the weak position of certain workers when bargaining for labor and the need for labor regulations to protect their interests, either through minimum wage laws or laws recognizing labor unions and the like. To this, the remaining holdouts on the court disagreed. Justice Sutherland penned a dissenting opinion in which he said simply that the meaning of the Constitution does not change with the ebb and flow of economic events. We frequently are told in more general words that the Constitution must be construed in light of the present. If by that is meant that the Constitution is made up of living words that apply to every new condition which they include, the statement is quite true. But to say, if that be intended, that the words of the Constitution mean today what they did not mean when written, that is, that they do not apply to a situation now to which they would have applied then, is to rob that instrument of the essential element which continues in force as the people have made it until they, and not their official agents, have made it otherwise. The judicial function, he goes on to say, is that of interpretation. It does not include the power of amendment under the guise of interpretation. But of course, Sutherland here begs the question, what did the 14th Amendment's due process clause mean when it was written? Was it, as Justice Holmes said in his Lochner dissent, meant to govern people with fundamentally different views on policy matters? Is constitutional meaning governed ultimately by public opinion? When should judges defer to legislative policy judgments? And when should judges act in an undemocratic way to protect individual rights from the abuse of majorities? These questions will stay with us as we turn next week to the rebirth of substantive due process in the mid-20th century. But you should take this away from West Coast Hotel versus Parrish. After this case, the court turned away from the Lochner-era liberty of contract jurisprudence and away from economic substantive due process. Since then, the court has been pretty deferential to legislative majorities with respect to economic regulations, but not so much in other policy areas, and so we'll pick up that story next week.